Ahmed, if you like something, you better do it. You better do everything to achieve it. So that 10 years, five years, or two years from now, when you look back at it, you don't have any regrets to live with. So do everything you can to achieve whatever you want. And this thought kept on coming in my mind. It's like, if I didn't chase what I'm really passionate about, I will not be happy with my life. And that is not the life I want to live. And welcome to Tomversations. That's T H O M Versations, where the H makes all the difference. How the H are you? I'm Tom Cocaine, your host, and you know, I'm doing good. Really, really, I'm in good health. I've getting good loving. I've got good peer, and I have good friends. Today, you'll hear from my very good friend, Amit Sharma, and he is having a grand adventure in life. You'll hear about him traveling from India arriving in the United States in the winter with snow on the ground and he's wearing a t-shirt, shorts, and flip-flops. And then you'll hear about him navigating the immigration system to get a visa to stay and work in the United States. He'll also tell you about his idea to cure cancer. It's a good one. And we'll also talk about how he has overcome many obstacles and setbacks, especially when his dream of teaching and sharing his passion of physics was being realized. And then it was snatched away from him and he had to leave the country basically at a moment's notice. Then, how he went to send over 900 applications to work once again in the United States. And that's over like a two and a half year period. Then, to achieving his dream and his passion. And he is now teaching in New York at a community college. I am so glad that Amit is on our side. He's one of the good guys. I'd like to welcome to Conversations our first sponsor, Moscow Brewing Company. And they're located right here in Moscow, Idaho, in the good old U.S. of A. And they are committed to creating the highest quality ales from ingredients found throughout the inland Northwest. They get locally grown grains and hops, but the quality of flavor and that consistent quality leaves you wanting another one. They'll stop in today, enjoy the selection of ales. They feature flavorful IPAs rich, wonderful stouts. Everything in between. Check out their Kolsch. It's pretty good. Look for Moscow Brewing Company on Facebook and at Moscow Brewing on Instagram. Thanks for being our first sponsor, Moscow Brewing Company. Good beer. Now, indulge me for a bit. Let me talk to you about starting and doing a podcast. This one specifically. I've been trying to do a podcast and do it consistently for a number of years. None of them quite worked out. It's like, you know, you have this idea in your head. You're trying to create something and then you make it and it just doesn't come out the way that you had imagined. And so, you know, I tried a couple of these long form conversations and I was like, I like this. I I like what was coming out. And so I try to tell people, they go, yeah, you know, I listened to it, but you know, it's it's long. It is long. But when you talk to people for a long period, you get some very interesting People kind of, they kind of change over time. At first, they're a bit, uh, they're a little tight. They're kind of trying to hold on to something. Or maybe they're a little defensive. But after you talk to them for over an hour, they really relax. And you start to get some very interesting answers and emotions that, that came out. So I really liked what happened after doing a couple of these long form conversations. And so I tell people, you know, I look at 
a couple of models. One is uh, WTF with Mark Marin and the Joe Rogan experience. Now, both of those are over an hour. Joe Rogan sometimes, he'll talk to people for like over four hours. Now, do I listen to the entirety of a four-hour podcast? No, I can't say that I have, but I do like to listen. I'll catch snippets. I'll maybe I'll zip ahead here and there, but I like to hear what's going on. I, I, I like what's happening there, right? But this is like the fourth conversation, and I'm not trying to compare myself to them. But, you know, that is a model to follow. Now, I want you to know this is a long-term project. I really hope to be doing this 20 years from now. I mean that, seriously. I can imagine retiring from my other job and just doing this, hopefully, you know, well into the future. But, you know, can imagine, imagine what can be done in one year of doing this. What, what about five years? Then think 10 years. I can just really see good things happening. You know, I can feel it. Well, I hope you do too. And let me tell you, I really sincerely appreciate you listening. Here I am in my garage talking to people and, you know, you want to hear it as well and experience it. Please, if you like it, subscribe. When I get a new subscriber, oh, I'm through the roof. I just like, yeah, it's, I, I, can you, can you hear the change in my voice? Like I get excited. I get tingly just, just talking about getting a new subscriber. But if you do, please do subscribe if you like it and tell a friend word of mouth, word of mouth and word on social media accounts for a lot. Even if it's just like, Hey, listen to this just once in a while, just would be so appreciated. I'm not saying you have to, if you would, that would be great. Okay. Enough of me talking. Let's, uh, let's get to it. Let's talk to my good friend, Amit Sharma. All right, Amit, thanks for uh, doing a conversations with me today. I really appreciate you coming in to the studio via Skype. <laughs> of course. <clears throat> and um, so now you are in uh, Utica, New York, right? So um, do want you just to introduce yourself? Um, hi, good morning, Tom. Um, good to be with you. Thank you for making me part of conversations. It's always wonderful chatting with you. Uh, well, my name is Amit Sharma, and uh, I'm a passionate physicist is how I would like to define myself as. Um, my, uh, my ambition in life is to enrich a mind such that that mind ends up winning uh, a Nobel Prize by making a contribution to the society. That's, that's, that's the one thought I always think of. This journey of enriching mind has brought me, um, started actually from uh, Bombay where I received my initial undergraduate and graduate education. And then from there, um, I uh, went to Idaho, Washington State, Arizona State, um, New Jersey, Bombay, so tons and tons of traveling and meeting amazing people around the world. That's how I describe myself. Oh, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good start. Yeah. Now, then, and you currently, uh, live and work in Utica, New York, and you, you work at uh, Mohawk Valley Community College as an instructor. What do you teach there? Um, I share my passion for physics and engineering here. And don't you teach, a, and you also teach a, like a prison 
Yeah, yeah. I uh, So uh, teaching here in upstate New York has been really interesting because New York State has a really amazing program where they want to give the um, um, people, uh, our inmates, uh, a second chance in life. And that second chance comes with educating them and giving them potential prospects to have some career options when they get out of prison. Um, and in order to get started with this regular program, uh, my college actually um, made an announcement that, hey, we are looking for educators who can, who would love to teach in the prison. And uh, getting through there to teach in the prison is a very extensive process. If you're interested, um, let's talk. And I, I always think that education is something that offers a mind and ability to evolve and offers a mind to think about themselves and the world around themselves differently. And there is no other better way to enrich a mind by teaching in prison. So it's 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 empowering. It's it's empowering experience. Why did you come to the United States, or why did you even want to come to the United States? Um, so um, when I got my first master's, um, after that I started teaching. Why? Um, I experienced in my uh, academic education career that there were some educators who could do better in educating and enriching minds. Um, but I, I, I felt that they were not. So I was like, okay, I, I, I want to do something. I want to try this. I want to try um, educating. And I found out that um, I was able to, uh, I, would, I was able to represent a thought in more than one taste. So that basically, that thought basically resulted in, um, after I got to getting my first master's, hey, I want to teach. I just want to try it, you know. Uh, being inspired by some amazing educators in my life, I was like, I want to try that profession because that's all what I saw growing up. So after teaching for a year, it came to my realization that, um, gosh, my, 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 my mind has come to a complete stop. I'm not, I'm not enriching my mind anymore. So at that point, I was like... Um, I want to learn more. This is not the end of it. You know, this is this is not the end. So with that, I started applying uh, for um, graduate education all over the world. And why did I take that decision? I took that decision because um, I believe education is just not going to an academic institution and educating yourself. And education is basically an entire experience of being in a completely different environment and not only learning how to survive in that environment, but also learning the education, because if you go to New York and educate yourself and learn physics, and if you go to, let's say, um, Bombay, India, and learn physics, the laws of physics are going to remain the same, but the environment around is going to affect you in a, in, in a way. So uh, with that thought, I decided I want to I go outside the country. I want to I see the educators outside the world that I grew up in, which is India. So I applied to Europe, United States, Japan, and Australia for my graduate education. I had reasons for each and every part. With the Europe, most of the physicists, renowned physicists are from that particular part of the world. So I was like, I want to experience physics as intimately as possible by learning physics there. Uh, Japan, I've been inspired by the Japanese precision of time and the entire foundation of physics is based on time. So I was like, I want to see how they look at physics. And the United States, well, the pioneer in education, one of the best institutions in the world in the US. So um, 
with that, I applied everywhere and United States welcomed me. They were like, yeah, you want to learn physics? Out of the four institutions I applied, two rejected. One I haven't still heard of, I haven't still heard after 13 years. And and the, the University of Idaho accepted me. So that brought me to the United States is to enrich myself and 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 to evolve in the world of physics. So that's how I came to US. So you, you decide to come to the United States. You're gonna to come to the uh University of Idaho, uh, mm-hmm. in Moscow, Idaho, where I live, mm-hmm. and um, you and where we met. Tell me the story of how you like what your preparation was to come here, and then how you got here. Um, so, um, wow, that's such an interesting question. So the preparation. So uh, there is a there is a television based representation of U.S. And there is a U.S. by itself. My entire perception of United States was all the hip-hop songs and all the Hollywood movies <laughs> that I saw. That is all. I have never spoken to a sing- I, In 2003, when I was coming to U.S. and I used to receive emails from uh, my point of contact in U.S., I could not even differentiate, is this name a female name or is it name a male name? I oh, had wow. no... I have no perception of gender-based classification of a of a um, of name in English. Um, there, there, there were some basic names that I had an understanding of, like John and Mary, but there are so many names that you can't understand. So uh, my preparation here was um, uh, was based upon the city that I'm going in, and and how what's the weather there like. And I need to start cooking because I grew up vegetarian and I have learned or I've heard that in the United States, the major, majorly consumed food product is meat. So my preparation of coming here was taking fast track cooking lessons from my, from my mom and mother and father and, and uh, understanding the time zone difference and, and, and I'm trying to watch some Hollywood movies so I can get the understanding of what the United States is. <laughs> that, that's how I prepared myself, you know? So I'm sure there is more to it. But, but the most interesting part was uh, when I went to a travel agent to book a ticket for Moscow, Idaho from Bombay, um, the travel agent thought that Moscow was Moscow and Russia. Oh, yeah. So he booked my ticket to Moscow, Russia. And if, if, if my mother would have checked it, that was Moscow, Russia. Then uh, uh, I think I would have taken that flight to Moscow, Russia, and I would have searched for the University of Idaho in Moscow, <laughs> Russia. But uh, thank God, thank goodness, I was corrected, so I got the correct ticket, and I landed in Moscow, Idaho. So I, I very uniquely remember that. Um, and uh, uh, one of the most interesting thing about Moscow, Idaho, is uh, growing up in Bombay is almost like growing up in Florida. It's beautiful, 70 degrees weather year-round, with 100%, almost 100% humidity. Um, the only place where I saw snow growing up for 21 years was in the freezer section of my refrigerator. <laughs> so when I landed in Idaho, um, I had to walk on a landing strip because I had a small 16-seater uh, jet that I had to take. And I was the only person in shorts and flip-flops and T-shirt because I didn't come. I, I had no perception of planning. When you go to a different country, how do you plan? Of course, my parents were advising me many things, but 
when you're 21, 22, you're always rebellious. You don't never want to listen to anyone. Yeah. That so, day I learned you should listen to everyone who are giving you good advice. <laughs> what time of year was this? What month was it? Do you know? Uh, this was this was December 30th, 2003. I can never forget that day. December what? December 30th, okay. 2003. I will never forget that day in my life. It was the first international trip I ever took. Yeah, 26-hour flight. I still have a very clear memory of that flight because... It's, it's It just sticks with you, you know. Uh, I remember landing on SeaTac International Airport and having an urge to drink a glass of water. But every everywhere I go, the only thing that I saw was Starbucks, 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 Seattle best. <laughs> and I could not find a glass of water. So I was like, fine, I'll drink a cup of coffee, Seattle, if that's what you want to drink. <laughs> and I went ahead to pay for the coffee. Um I had a six-hour layover in Singapore. I have four-hour layover in Seoul. So I ended up getting currencies from these two countries just because. So when I landed in Seattle and she wanted me to pay for the coffee, I ended up giving her currencies from Singapore and Seoul and India <laughs> because I couldn't figure out, and even in the United States, because I could not figure out after 26 hours of flight which currency belonged to which country. She was so irritated by figuring out what currency I should get. She gave me the cup of coffee for free. So here oh, it is. Wow. If you want to get a cup of coffee for free, <laughs> go to the counter with the currencies from all the world. Yeah. And if there's a huge line in behind you, you will get your coffee for free. <laughs> I figured that out first day when I landed in the United States. That's what... <laughs> right? So you're in Seattle, you get your cup of coffee, and then so then you're going to take a flight from there uh, to, uh, to Moscow, Idaho. Is that it? Yeah, Moscow Pullman Regional Airport. That, yeah, that was my last leg of flight. And, uh, you know, I want to actually share an experience with you on, on that. So when I landed, in, in, but I took my last leg of flight and I landed in Moscow, Idaho at, at 11 o'clock in the evening or in the night. You have absolutely no perception of the day or night because you're complete, coming from a different time zone. So you, yeah. So, uh, so when I landed in Moscow, Idaho, my next objective was to get a cab and go to Royal Motor Inn. Um, where my reservation overnight was made. So I had quarters, and uh, so I call, I used a payphone booth, and I called A to Z taxi or a, ta a local cab. And I called the cab driver, and I told that, hi, um, I need a ride to Royal Motor Inn. Uh, this is not how I sounded like on that day. So he told, I can't understand you. So I again mentioned I would like to go to Royal Moran. I'm in Moscow Pullman Regional Airport. Um, it's like I I I cannot understand you. Um, then uh, he's like I, I repeated myself three and four more times. It's like, can you please write where you want to go on a piece of paper and tell anyone around to pronunciate for me because I cannot understand you. Um, so I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so, we'll, so you he so he got you where he got that you're at the airport. Yeah, he got okay. that I was the airport. Okay. But he couldn't understand where I want to go <laughs> and what I'm asking for. Wow, okay. So uh, so I wrote on a piece of paper, and I told the guy, um, uh, I think it was a custodian guy, can you please tell him where, where I'm at and what I'm looking for? So he read it, and, and then I got a cab. And I was like, yay. And then I reached my destination. I was like, yay, now I can finally get to sleep. And then the next morning when I woke up, I was like, I'm in a serious problem here today. And the problem was defined as 
I am going to share my passion for physics here. And the first person that I spoke to in this city could not understand me. <laughs> yeah. How am I going to do my job if people cannot understand what I'm talking about? So I was like, the good thing is I know what the problem is. Now, only the only thing I have to do here is I have to find the solution. So I was like, okay. So I went downstairs and I found Blockbuster, which was a thing back in the day, and Howard Hughes video, which was one of the iconic uh, video store, DVD store in Moscow. Still there. Still there. Oh, still there. Oh, still there. Oh, yeah. wow. So, wow, I'm, I'm shocked. Uh, so yeah. I went there and I picked up, I remember this very clearly, and you will know why. Um, Top Gun, Sesame Street, and Italian Job Movies. <laughs> And I purchased a DVD player from the Walmart and I came back to my room. And then I ended up playing these movies in Sesame Street pronunciation of words for next two weeks, 24 hours a day. And after seven and eight days, there came a point when uh, I used to mute the audio and I used to speak at the pace that they are speaking just so that I can get the hang of the language. And then after two weeks, um, I, I think I considerably improved uh, my communication of words so that people can understand me, you know? Mm. So, uh, yeah, it was that, that was quite, those two weeks were quite educating, you know, it's, so yeah. you, you've had, so you land in, in Moscow, you, you get to, you finally get to your place of destination and you said you only have flip flops and shorts. Yeah. In December. I, in December, in December of 2003. You How much correct. snow was on it? Was, uh, uh, that's a good, uh, it, it was quite enough that I could feel it on my feet. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Um, I, I did not come prepared for the snow. I had zero perception of, of, I, I didn't even know how to jacket on me. I had a jacket, but I ended up stuffing it in my bag because when I was taking the flight, I was like, ah, I can deal with anything I want. But when I landed in Moscow, I, don't, I literally cannot differentiate between male and female species because everyone was so bundled up in their jackets <laughs> that the only thing visible were their eyes and nose and mouth. And I was like, oh dear, oh dear. But yeah, uh, after that, my next trip to the local store, I basically got shoes, jacket, and I, I didn't mention this, but I also hugged the heater for three to four days flat because it was too cold. It was, it was too cold that I needed a heater right next to me all the time. <laughs> you come from 100% humidity and 70 degrees to, you know, very low humidity. Yeah. And... and 30 degrees. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, yeah, that is, that is right about exactly how it happened. Fahrenheit, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like minus one. Yeah, degree centigrade. Yeah. <laughs> right? Oh, brother. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then, so your entire experience to do that, what did, what kind of uh, process did you have to go through in order to to come to the United States? What's, what's the process you had to do yeah, to come here legally like that? So um, the first process is to give your GRE and 
TOEFL exam, which is um, a graduate school examination and test of spoken English. Um, once you have these test scores ready, and you have to prepare for that, of course, um, then you select out of so many institutions. No, then you have to, then you decide what do you want to learn? And then you shortlist where do you want to learn that in, in the United States. And after having that shortlist ready, then you look into the admission procedure, which is unique for each and every institution, followed by that, submitting your application. And, uh, and, uh, and getting accepted. So this this entire process of giving an examination, applying to the universities, selecting a program takes a year. And once that is done, so let's say let's say we are the stage that I'm accepting a university and now I want to come here for education. Then you go to the United States consulate and you book um, an appointment for an interview where you present all your documents and the paperwork that you have been accepted to the institution. Um, and then from there, if it is approved, then you take a flight and then you figure out, oops, where do you want to uh, live in the university? Do you want to live in the dorms or do you want to live outside the campus? And and then you take a flight and then and then you come. It's all in all approximately one and a half to two years process. It takes extensive planning and systematic execution of things because if, you, if something is not on the order, then you get skipped up to the next semester or next year. So, and that's uh, all pretty much done for you, pretty much? I mean, like- No, there's, there's... I ended up figuring it out and, and getting that information on, on the go. That's how it, it it was. I mean, um, yeah, yeah. So, you, you you literally saw it out. There are some there are some resources. So there there are uh, U.S. universities coming in the city to conduct career fair, where they give information about what programs they have. This is Mumbai. And, yeah, Bombay. yeah, yeah. And and um, and share with you how to go about it. So I attended some of those career fairs where I got the information on how to get this thing started. Okay, and then what? Do, so, what kind of a visa do you have to have? What kind of immigration it's forms? A, it's a it's a student visa F one. F one student visa that that I had to acquire in order to come here and and educate myself and chase my ambitions. So you come here with a, a student visa. How how long does a student visa last? Now, the the duration of the student visa is defined based upon the piece of document that the university sends here. Now, for me, it was because I was here, coming here for the graduate doctoral program, so the duration was defined as four years. So the document that the United States institution will send you will give the duration of the stay that you provided to the uh, consular at the U.S. Embassy. So if in case you're going for a bachelor's program, then it'll be three years. If you're going for an associate's program, it'll be for one and a half years. Um, so it depends. It, it is defined by the program. Okay. And so with uh, yours, you got uh, four years. Confirmed. And so then you uh, go to the University of Idaho and you get your, uh, you, you don't quite get your degree there. Yeah. But, but that is, I think that conversation is completely in itself. 
Yeah, that's that's a whole other topic. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's another thing. Uh, right. But uh, so you um, so then what? So then you you're here. You're you're here for how long? How long did you were you a student? I was here. I, I was a student for six years, four, five, five and a half years to be precise. Okay, so when that four years is up, what do you need to do to uh, continue with the student visa, right? That's what you got next, was you just continue that student visa? Yes, sir, yeah. So what did you have to do? What's what's the process there? Uh, I'll, I'll, take, I'll, I'll take graduate courses, okay. and I'll teach undergraduate courses, and I will also conduct research. These were the objectives. So then you keep going with that, with the... Uh, so, but how do you, we have to reapply for the, the, the thing or what happens there with the visa? So um, I, I started my graduate education at the University of Idaho, but I finished it at Washington State University by getting my degree in uh, uh, material science and engineering. And the process is... is, is, is that was is a master's degree, right? That was a master's degree. Was, yeah. Master's yes, degree yeah. in material science and engineering. Confirmed, yeah. So... Um, uh, so in order to change the institution, all I had to do was the institution that I was at before will send my information to the second institution. And if I'm accepted there, then they will basically update my um, immigration status with the U.S. government. So that's so, how that process is. So they did it for you? Yes. Right. I, I, upon getting accepted in a second institution, then the universities communicated and, and transferred the information. And my immigration status was basically internally communicated by the by the university officials and updated. You've been in the United States six years? Uh, yeah. You've got your yeah. degree. And then, and then there was kind of this uh, period where things were in flux, you might say, right? Yeah. Um, after graduating... Um, from Washington State University, um, I was at the point where, what do I want to do? And I realized that I've been in school as a student for so many years. Now I want to be what I always aspired to be, which was a full-time educator. So, uh, so uh, I, because my ambition was clearly defined, my next objective was to basically change my my ambition. So from there, I started basically, um, so uh, the U.S. government has this program where in an event you get a degree from a U.S. institution, and if you would like to work here, then you send an application to the U.S. government requesting for work. You have an advantage if you have a degree in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, and if you have made a substantial contribution to the field, and I had around more than a dozen publications Wow, that's pretty yeah. good. Now that's that's unusual, isn't it, for someone with uh, to have yeah. a dozen uh, who has just uh, you just have one master's degree at the time, right? Uh, second, second master's degree, but th yeah. that's still. I mean, to get a master's degree, you need to publish one paper, isn't that correct? Yeah, I mean, you get a PhD. I, I, it is my understanding I've seen students getting PhD degree with just one publication. Wow, so you have twelve. This is above and beyond. This is not that's above normal. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I just passionately loved what I do. So publication just followed just because of the pioneer work that that took place during my academy education. Um, so, um, so, so just uh, for just to kind of stop you here for a second, talking about your education and uh, your 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 publications and the one thing, did you ever publish a paper on the how you thought um, how nanotechnology could help with um, joint replacement? 
Isn't that something you yeah. were working on? Did you ever write a paper on that? Uh, yeah, I actually ended up um, publishing my thesis, my graduate thesis. Okay, well, tell us a little that. bit about that, then we'll, we'll kind of move on, because I think this is very fascinating of how you... Tell us what what it is that you discovered. What you what paper it was you so, published in? So in the, the, there were two uh, out of out of five projects that I worked on. There were two projects who were directly affecting um, the the human race. One was one project was to find a non invasive way to cure cancer. The the current treatment of cancer is basically you stand in front of an X ray. Now the best way I can describe that to you is you stand in front of a light bulb and the light bulb is emits so much energetic radiation that that energetic radiation is of a certain energy that will penetrate under your skin and only kill and eradicate the cancer cells. The, the, the disadvantage of this is apart from killing cancer cells, it also kills the healthy cells. And that killing of the healthy cells basically results in side effects of cancer. Now, here is how the problem is defined, that X-ray radiation does cure cancer but it also lands a patient with some side effects. And the side effects are unique to each and every patient based upon what healthy cells have been damaged or killed. Now, the project that I had in my hand is to find a non-invasive way. And non, let me define non-invasive. Non-invasive means without, without taking a scissor or, or an, and a knife and cutting a human body and to try, and to, try to find a cure for cancer. So what I found out in my, this particular project was if I created a super paramagnetic nanoparticle, which is less than 15 nanometer in size. Now, why 15 nanometer in size? Because uh, the size of the nanoparticle is defined by the size of the cancer cell. So I was specifically working on LXI lung cancer cell found in rats, which are very similar to the cancer cells found in human beings. And my first objective was to create and invent a method to create a nanoparticle smaller than the, than the uh, lung cancer cell. So I, did, I, I invented and created that. And the second objective was to basically, if you inject any external thing inside the human body, the RBCs and WBCs, red blood cells and white blood cells, which are the defenders, or which are the homeland security of a human body, <laughs> they will go ahead and kill these external injections into your body. So in order for my nanoparticle to be undetected, I ended up coating them with a non-biocompatible material so that when it goes inside the human body, it does not get detected. So I invented a way to do that. I collaborated with the Oregon Health and Sciences University where they were willing to test the nanoparticles uh, for cancer treatment or to, to see if in case they will be accepted by or be, being taken by the cancer cell. So uh, they tried experiments and we found that these nanoparticles could be injected inside the cancer cell. And that was the biggest hurdle. We've, after getting to that particular route, all I had to do was externally heat these nanoparticles and only and only kill cancer cells. Now, the beautiful thing that we found out with this research was a cancer cell will die at a 43 degree centigrade and a healthy cell will die at a 45 degree centigrade because I could specifically heat only those nanoparticles which are inside the cancer cell. I will only kill the cancer cell with zero side effect. So the prospect of this, if it, if it really works and gets implemented, is the patient comes to a hospital first thing in the morning with the cancer and get discharged the same day with no cancer, with zero side effect. And, and that was the, the, the outcome of this particular project. Wow, yeah, amazing. Yeah. This, the second project that I worked on 
was to increase the lifetime of human uh, hip implants. Um, the, to define the problem, the problem that we had is the titanium hip implants that we put inside the human body right now have an average lifetime of seven to nine years. Um, because when it connects with the uh, uh, human body, the what the, the, the problem is when the titanium artificial implant is inside the human body, the biological fluids basically um, corrode the surface. And then they come, they, the, the, the metal comes in contact with the bone, and then it, it is in time for replacement after seven to nine years. So uh, the objective was to increase the lifetime of the uh, artificial implants. So what we did here at Washington State University under the supervision of Dr. Brandapathyai, who's an amazing um, professor and educator was, uh, we found a way to coat uh, the uh, titanium uh, surface with a nanotube. And we found out that if in course we coat the titanium artificial hip implant with nanotubes, then the human tissues forms bonds with the nanotubes thereby increasing the lifetime from eight, seven to nine years to at least 15 to 16 years. This basically would reduce the cost and the treatment process by 50, 50%. So a person doesn't have to go after seven years for a treatment, but after 15 years to replace those hip implants. So the lifetime of the hip implant is increased and, and it basically, uh, reduces the risk of replacing an implant in a human body after seven to nine years. But, but so implants was, now do last longer, right? I mean, they, they don't last seven to nine years anymore. They last much longer than that currently. Yes, confirmed, because of the, because of the fact that if you grow nanotubes on top of it, then it, it, it has an also-integration property where it, does, it, 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 it basically forms a better bond and it does not ditter on surface doesn't ditter over the course of time i mean well so is that what's currently implemented in in um yeah yeah oh yeah. so they did, did, did and this was because of your your um what you did uh, or did this came out some other way it, it well um um there are many research groups conducting research in the particular field and we were trying to find what is the most optimal way to do that so for one year when I was on this particular project, I basically was able to um, figure out a method to grow nanotubes effectively. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I found out that this can be implemented um, and, and we can do this. So when you're working in the field of research, everyone is doing experiments to find out what is the most effective way to do something? And my contribution was, hey, I have found out this anodization method that grows these this much long nanotubes, and they are pretty strong too. So, um, so I ended up contributing data that basically uh, furthered the, uh, the the field of of surface modification of of artificial implants. Yes. Look at you and your big brain. <laughs> I brushed oh, my teeth you. this morning. <laughs> <laughs> That's my my contribution to the United States. Yeah, I, have, no, I, know, I, I have fresh yeah. breath. <laughs> it's, um, science is very exciting because you get to do things which directly impact many people, you know. And um, 
it always amazes me that I initially thought that, hey, once I graduate out of high school, I don't have to learn anything anymore because my perception at that point, I was just trying to please my parents to 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 get get out of the high school. Yeah. And then when I got up there with my bachelor's degree, at that point, I was like, you know, it is not anymore about just getting the education. I now I'm able to find that I can further this particular field to to be at that particular avenue and to see that, oh, dear goodness. The field of science has now given me the opportunity to contribute and now write new chapters of how we can uh, enrich this. It's an amazing feeling. And 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 coming here in the United States and getting that education and, and to further the field of science was just very empowering. You know, it, it, it ended up boosting me with amazing confidence and introduced me with amazing scientists that I only read in books. You know, so it's it's an evolving experience. Well, wow, so that so you've done all this all this study, all these experiments, published these papers, and then um, after you've graduated with your master's degree in uh, uh, engineering, was it again? It's a, a material science, material and science and engineering. Um, then, so you're out of school. And now you're on to a different problem of trying to find out what to do next. And you've done these amazing things and you think, okay, I want to show other people how to, how to use science in generally, right? How to teach them physics and science. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so yeah. now, 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 so what happens now? So how long do you have with your visa after you graduate from college? How long do you yeah, have with yeah. that student visa? How long does that last so, after uh, that? So uh, after I got my uh, graduate degree, um, I had a few options. I could, I, could, I could take a break from academy education, go back and, and spend some time with my parents, or I can change my, uh, or I can change, chase my ambitions. Now, um, the one interesting information that I learned was if you have a degree in the field of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, then the U.S. government offers you an opportunity to see if in case you want to implement that knowledge and gain uh, legal employment. And that comes with the cap of only one year. And if you are only in a, if you have a degree in only in certain specific field, then and only then you can get that work experience. And I'm like, huh, I have an option to either I can just get this degree and go back home or I can get uh, US working experience. And at that point I was like, wait a minute, if I have an international experience in, um, in, in an academic field, and then I go back to India, um, my pros- my job prospects are absolutely higher. So I was like, let's 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 see if in case I can get a job. You know, it's it's a, it's a hit and miss gamble. If I get a job, I'll get a work experience in US, and if I not, then fair. I at least tried. Ten years from now, I'll not look back at it regretting I never tried. So I applied for that, and I was approved. So when I was approved, I was like, wow, I can I can try to work here. And the only job that I was interested in was teaching. And, and because eight years of research, basically, I was at the threshold point. I'm, I'm, I'm done doing research. I want to take a break. So now, but so I, when that got approved, then I started applying for teaching jobs. And I got my first teaching opportunity at, um, at Edmonds Community College in, uh, in Seattle, in Linwood, Washington, which is like, 15 miles from Seattle, I believe, 15 to 20 miles. Yeah, but uh, about uh, 250, 300 miles from Moscow, Idaho. Yeah. About yeah, a five-hour yeah. five drive or so. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
So uh, I, uh, that was an experience in itself. So I hear I was in charge of teaching physics and chemistry, college level, to, to students. But hold on, these are not the students, the traditional school students. These are international students from Denmark. So Edmonds Community College had a collaboration with, with a high school in Denmark where they invited 35 exchange students to uh, learn physics and chemistry so that we can, they can have an American education experience. So here I was, after educating myself in the United States for approximately six and a half to seven years, so, I had an opportunity. Okay, hang on. So you're like what? Are you, you're, you're not quite 30. No, I, I was, I was, yeah, I was, I was 29, 30. Yeah, 29 oh, going okay. over 30. So right, you're, you're, you're in Edmonds. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, the most unique thing about this thing was after being in the United States for around six and a half, seven years, when I landed my first teaching opportunity, it was to teach international students who have never experienced U.S. education ever. I was the ambassador of the U.S. education, and eight years prior, I was here to experience U.S. education. <laughs> that was the most amazing thing about this, that, yeah. wow, I get to summarize my eight year of U.S. education and also throw in my academic education in India and deliver it to these students from Denmark. I couldn't be any more excited for this opportunity. That was the most amazing thing. But... What was even much more better about this, on the day one when I went to the class to enrich these minds, after first 55 minutes of the lecture, you know, when you give a lecture, there's a spark in the student's eyes when they understand anything. And if they don't, then you can see in their eyes that they haven't gotten it. After giving my lecture of 55 minutes, I saw that my entire class was so lost. And I'm like, oh dear, don't tell me that. I have to go back home and buy some Den uh, Danish TV programs <laughs> be because uh, they're not able to understand what I'm speaking here. Right. So then I asked one of the students, like, hey, what is it? What are you not able to understand? I saw that many students were confused. And then she told me, it is not you. This is the very first time in our 18 years we are sitting in a classroom where a teacher is teaching in English. So we are just completely overwhelmed right now to receive education in English because we have never read an English book. And at that point, I was like, oh, dear goodness. So here I applied the same logic that I applied in 2003 when I came to the United States. I went back and I started uh, watching some shows and, and local used Danish words. And in my English lectures, I used to incorporate those words to, to build a bridge um, in between me and my students. And after the first few lectures, I was able to educate and enrich these minds. So it was an amazing experience. I still miss, miss the students. I, if I could do this again, I totally would. But even much more better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my first gig, and I loved it. I absolutely, delightfully loved it. Going in the classroom, to, to sit on the other side of the classroom, like for 30 years, I was sitting on the student's side of the classroom. All of a sudden, when it gets transformed to be on the other side, where you are at the point where you're at the level you can enrich these minds, it's a very empowering experience. It it makes you do even much more, more better, you know? So, so, yeah, that's how this went. And how long did that last? Uh, that lasted for a quarter. 
and and my teaching uh, here was uh, so much appreciated by by the students and other colleagues in the campus that it resulted in a part-time position of teaching for one more quarter at uh, Edmonds Community College. So the, the, the course went completely successful. Uh, the international programs office were really happy with how the program was run. And the Department of Physics and Astronomy there was like, hey, would you like to teach here part-time? And uh, I was like, yeah, I would, I would delightfully love to. And then that from one quarter, I ended up going for the second quarter where I ended up teaching engineering physics. So there you are in, in Edmonds. You've been, so you got two quarters there, so about uh, six months or so. Yeah. Living in Linwood yeah. and hanging out. Yeah. Living in Seattle, Washington, commuting every day via bus. Ah. Going via Seattle downtown. It was it was amazing. Living in a small town of Moscow, Idaho, and now living in, in, in one of the most beautiful cities in the world, which is Seattle. You know, you wake up every morning by looking at Mount Rainier. You can't go wrong with that. You, you can't. And Cascade Mountains on the corner, life can't get any better. <laughs> <laughs> Right? High praise. Yeah. Shout out to Seattle, right? Seriously. Seriously. Free car wash every day. It rains there. It rains so much in Seattle that you have a free car wash every day. <laughs> and let me tell you why I'm saying that. When I lived in Arizona, I had to pay $9 for a car wash. <laughs> I saved $9 every day in Seattle due to free car wash <laughs> offer complimentary. But we haven't got to Arizona yet. That's, that's coming up, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So you're but, in uh, so you're in Seattle for how? But you stayed there longer than six months, right? Yeah, I stayed there for a year, approximately a year. Um, of course, there was a period when I was looking for a career too, but th that was a time when I was teaching at Edmonds Community College, and then uh, um, now the the thing with the with this the part time position of teaching came with the cap that it is it, it I, if if I have to work again for the next quarter, I have to reapply. And at that point, that opened an avenue reapply that I could apply what? anywhere else. Reapply for what? Uh, for, for extending my teaching. Ah, I see. Because this particular yeah. position was only for one quarter. So nothing was certain here. Now, my work authorization was for a year. So after teaching for seven to eight months, I still had three months in the hand. Now, here comes one more thing that the U.S. government is like, okay, if in case you have a gainful employment here, then you can extend your work authorization by one more year. And I, I had a gainful employment, so I extended that period, and U.S. government approved that too. I was like, "Well, sure, I will, I will, I will teach. I will share my passion for physics. It's amazing. I'm, I'm enjoying it here." And, uh, and, and yeah, so that's how I uh, ended up teaching at Edmonds, and then this resulted in, in, uh, in, uh, in me getting. Uh, opportunity to teach physics at Arizona State University, physics and chemistry, actually. Now, is this time uh, when, when you were still in Edmonds, did you, that, did, when did you come to our house and stay? Was that right after you graduated? Uh, yeah, right after I graduated. Okay. I, I'm, I'm kind of skipping timelines there, but you stayed with us for a good like six months or so, and then you moved up to the Seattle area and, yeah. and got that gig. I don't know if, the, when, if you moved up there and then got that job or what the time uh, No, no, no. I, I, was, I was actually tutoring and and University of Idaho and Washington State University in that particular time as I was searching for the jobs. Right. And then yeah, yeah. and then you got the the job at Edmonds. Yes, yes. Eventually. Yeah. Okay, and then uh, so now here you are again you're trying to find your way one more time. Yeah, so now I was like, okay, now I have uh 
I, I can expand my search because I don't have to be limited to to teach here. Um, so I was like, let's let's see where else I can teach. So I applied to a few universities, and Arizona State University basically accepted my application, but they were like, we only have two courses to teach, and one is in the first part of the summer, and the other is in the second part of the summer. Uh, now, this particular job offer actually came right at the time when I got an offer from Edmonds Community College to teach engineering physics. Now, I was here with the two job offers after teaching for the first quarter to the international student. One was from Edmonds Community College, and one was from Arizona State University. And uh, I was like, what do I do? Now, um, here's a moral thing that I told I, the model thought that came to mind. It's like Washington State invested and gave me funding to do some good research, which basically gave me the opportunity to teach here. So it's like I, I owe the residents of Washington State that knowledge. So I ended up uh, negotiating with the Arizona State University that, hey, I cannot come for the first part of the summer, but I'll come for the second part of the summer. And the reasoning behind that was I wanted to teach for one quarter in Washington State before I leave the local residents of, of the state. So they accepted that. And uh, right I, after I was done with Edmonds Community College, in a week's time, I took a road trip from uh, Seattle to Phoenix, Arizona, um, with, with, with just one month job to teach one summer course of physics. But I was like, it is worth it. I would get an amazing academic experience somewhere where you very, very don't get a free car wash every day. Let's try it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so yeah so that's that that took that's one after the other so i got one gig and then second gig was teaching at arizona state university from what i what i remember it what goes pretty well yeah so i teach there for one semester and the staff and the students are so and, and the administration are so happy that my that they were like wow um everyone is really happy with the way you're teaching physics and um, uh, they basically showed that, hey, you know, we are looking for uh, instruction specialist and you qualified to be that. Would you be interested in, in doing this job? I was like, yeah, I would, I would be delighted to. So uh, they offered me a permanent position to be an instructional specialist where I could teach undergraduate physics and chemistry course at Arizona State. And that one month job resulted in an almost a permanent position there. And so, um, and at this time too, when you're there, there's some really weird politics. Well, weird politics in general is weird. Tell me like, what's happening politically in Arizona at the time when you're there. So, um, at Arizona at that particular point, um, they were passing a law where uh, if there is anyone with not write paperwork with them all the time, then I think we should we could prosecute them. I don't know the number of the law. But they were like, if you don't have a write paperwork on you, you'll be prosecuted. Now, this results in me always having my write paperwork on me all the time. And this is for in immigrants, right? Anybody it, who's an immigrant. Yeah, yeah, as an immigrant. In my bag, in my car everywhere all the time, just because I was so nervous. I was, I was just so nervous what's going to happen because uh, there were many, uh, illegal immigration seems like a very big problem there in that state. 
So in order to enforce that in its highest norm, they they were basically talking about passing laws to make sure that everyone has the right paperwork with them all the time. So uh, so yeah, that was one thing that happened uh, by the end of my first year of teaching in in Arizona State. And so with the that in kind of in the background, there's this kind of this tenseness going on in the background constantly, just because. You're, um, I don't know, is it still called immigrant? Are you an immigrant at that time? Is it, But you have immigrated? What, what's really your American status or status in America? I'm an international scholar right now um, where I've been authorized by U.S. government to teach. Okay. and mm-hmm. But you're there at Arizona State, and you're there for a, a little over a year, right? Yeah, almost exactly 11 months. But now, so you, you've had this year, another year extension on your work visa, but there's something else that comes up. Tell me what happens with so the... Now, so now that. here is now, um, the U.S. government already uh, extended my work authorization for a year, which was basically, if you graduate from a U.S. institution, then you can, you can, you can work here, if, only if we approve you. So... Um, now I've exhausted all the extensions. So now the only way for me to work would be to have a valid work visa. So I, I when they offered me the permanent position, I, I clearly mentioned them that, hey, uh, my current work authorization is still June 17th, 2012. And uh, if you want me to work, live and work here, and then you will have to sponsor for my work authorization. And uh, if you're willing to do that, then I'll accept this offer. And they, at that point, the administration said, yeah, we, we, would, we would want you to work here. So um, seven months prior, my expiration, which is in December of 2011, I initiated this conversation. So then they forwarded me to the International Students and Scholars Office to, to file the required paperwork to change my work status. <coughs> so uh, I, uh, so that particular process was started. So apart from me doing teaching, I ended up doing, doing submitting all the paperwork to do that. Okay, let now me, the, hang on a second. So with, what now, you're, you're gonna kind of change what's going on with um, your work requirements. So now you're kind of a visiting scholar with a, a, a work authorization after being a student. And now yeah. you're getting what? What's the next thing? What is the, the so thing next that you thing need is to get? basically being a professional employee. And to work, to be, to, to legally work here, you need a work visa, which is defined as H1B. Okay, well, there's there's different varieties of that, right? I mean, there's H-1B. There's a whole bunch of different types of, of visa that you can get to work here. So a lot of people think of a green card, but a green card is different than an green H-1B. Green card comes after H-1B. So an H-1B visa is what? Uh, it's a work visa. It gives you the authorization to live and work in the United States legally for a duration of three years or the duration of employment, which should not exceed for more than three years. But but this is also uh, employer-based. They have to say you are exceptional. Yes. The H-1B visas are only given if an United States institution specifically communicates with the U.S. government telling them, we would like to hire this person because this particular person has a very unique talent 
and he's of a benefit to the society. Yeah, and there's a, so, there's a limit to that. There's only like, I don't know, so many tens of thousands of those available in the United States a year. Yeah, there are there are there is a definitely a cap on uh, on that for how many of those can be awarded. Yes. Oh, okay, so then there's this so you you go after the H1B. Now, do you know much about what a green card is? No, no. At that point my only objective was, hey, you know what? I have a willful employment now. And, um, and there it's, it's, it's definitely for more than one year. So let's go ahead and apply for the work uh, okay. visa so I can live and work here. Okay. So, right. This yeah. is your path. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I ended up like, fair, if my employer is willing to do that, then I will be happy to work. So one thing after the other was landing and working constructively. So I was like, let's go into this. And so the end. So, yeah. So, um, I started this particular conversation in December and, then in, uh, um, so I started spring semester of, of 2012 and uh, Jan happened, I communicated, it's like the, the process is in the pipeline, then February happened, I communicated with the director of the International Students and Cause Scholars Office, it's like we're still in the process of doing it. Then February happened, I asked for an update, they told me it's still in the process, then March happened, still in the pipeline april happened they still told me still in the pipeline may happened. they still told me that i'm in the pipeline and then in june on the may 29th 2012 i sent an email to the director indicating that there are only uh, 21 days in my work authorization it can't be in pipeline right now because we also have to give united states government to take a decision on this where is the process at that point I received a phone call telling me that we are sorry, we have short staff right now. We haven't submitted your application to the U.S. government yet. Oh, wow. So for six months, they basically told me that my process, we, have, we, have, we, have, we are working on it and we are getting it straightened out. And then 21 days prior, they told me that, oh, we are sorry, we, we have a short staff and um, we will get this through. So now um, that was that was strange. Uh, that was very strange. I've never encountered um, anything like this because if if my employer does not um, update my immigration status to the U.S. government, then I have violated a U.S. law. And if I violate a U.S. law, then I'm in a problem. And I know, I'd never want to be in that particular area because respecting the country's law is the most important thing to me. And even though I was on top of this thing by asking the International Programs Office that what is the status of my application, they from themselves did not communicate with the U.S. government, thereby stealing or adding a delay to this process. I cannot communicate with the U.S. government directly. I can only communicate via my employer with the U.S. government. For an H-1B? Yeah, for any, for any purpose, for any, any legal employment. I cannot tell U.S. government, hey, give me a job. It has to come from the institution that, hey, we would like to hire him. There are certain ways in, in an event you're phenomenally exceptional, you can do that. But I, I, I thought that if I have a job, then and only then I'll do it. If I don't, then I'll just pack my bags and go. 
So, uh, so now when, when, so when your H1B visa expires, what happens? Now I haven't got my H1B visa yet. I'm still on, um, work authorization from us to live and work because I got a U.S. degree and I have a significant contribution in the field of science. Okay. So what happens if that, what happens when that expires? Well, you can, you can apply for the second extension of H1, which after the second no, extension... No, no, wait, 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 you just said, hang on. So you just said that you weren't even on an H1B visa. You're still on your work authorization thing, right? Yes. Okay, so now what happens when that expires? Uh, you get H1B. Even like Okay, even if, no, what I'm saying is what happens if it, it expires, but there, you don't you don't get an extension, you don't have an H1B? What's your, what are your options? Uh, you leave the country within two weeks. Okay, so after it ends... You have two weeks to get out. Yeah, two weeks to 60 days. So it is not a well-defined information. Okay. This information is not defined. So it's a gray area. All right. So now you've got 21 days. So now I got 21 days in my hand. And um, so uh, there is this one thing where there's an expedited processing where the U.S. government will process your application in the span of 15 days. So because there were only 21 days in my hand, my uh, the director of my department was like, no, we would like to have him. So uh, so they paid extra uh, fees for the expedited processing to apply for my H1. Um, and uh, it happened. They, they submitted the application and um, and it was approved. The U.S. government approved my authorization to to share my passion for physics and chemistry at Arizona State University. But, um, um, now this is an information that has not been clearly conveyed to me, which I'm very unsure of. But in order to apply for a non-US citizen to work in US, you have to get two things done. One is labor certification, from the Department of Labor, you submit an application to them saying that we are giving this person the living wage that we will give to a normal U.S. citizen, okay? Uh, just to make sure that they are not lowballing me or giving me less pay. If or, that or, or giving is, you more than what the average person is yeah, getting. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. but not less. Right. So once I have that labor certification approved, then you apply, s- submit it with your H-1B, and then the H-1B gets evaluated. Now, I'm not sure how they submitted my application, but they tell me, or they told me that... This is Arizona State telling you? Yeah, this is Arizona State, Mm -hmm. that um, uh, your labor certification came out with a completely different information, and your H-1B is... The information that we submitted to H-1B is different. So even if your work authorization is approved, we can't give you this job. And I don't know this. I do not know this because, again, um, immigration laws change frequently. So um, I'm a physicist by profession, not an immigration lawyer by profession. So I, I, my mind does not have a national aptitude to understand and interpret laws. So I'm very much heavily dependent on International Programs Office to help me out here. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so that even even if the U.S. government has approved your work authorization, we are going to cancel it, or we're going to request the government to cancel it because um, the Department of Labor wages has given us a different number. 
um, which again is, un, un, I, I don't know what that exactly translates into. So I told him, can I please see the copy of my petition? I was like, no, at our university, we have a policy that we don't give the, po uh, the copy of the petition uh, to, 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 to the applicant. I was like, okay, um, now one of my friends told me, who is also an international student, that no, you as an applicant do receive a copy because when you go to a U.S. consulate outside the country, you have to show that copy of application to, to the officer. So that is illegal. That is wrong. There is a right of information act where you're legally bound to get that copy. And why are they withholding from you? So I sent an email by stating that. And they emailed me after that, the copy of my petition. So this was a quite chaotic place to be with. It was clear that the International Students and Programs Office had something against me or something about something that is undefined to me. So um, at that point, I was like, I, I just don't want to be part of this mess. I don't want to be, I, I want to teach. I, I love to teach. And this is not working out constructively. So I packed my bags and I moved. But Ed, but there was a time that you make it sound like I packed my bags and I moved, but you literally, there was a time there where you like had to leave the country. Yeah, I, I, I left the country because my immigration status no, was wait, completely compromised. But no, wait and, a second, but hold on, hold on, hold on. No, I mean, after at Arizona State, I mean, there was a time where you, you either stay, you, there's something had to change. Like you had very limited time to get this corrected or you're so going to be kicked I, out yeah, of the country. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very good question. I completely forgot about that part. Now, um, so Arizona State University contacted U.S. government and told them, hey, even though you have approved this person's H-1B visa, we are sending you this information that cancel it. And they sent it by FedEx overnight. Now, the U.S. government ended up sending them the information back that this person may be present in this country illegally. So within, within 48 hours, my immigration status was undefined. On Monday, I had work visa. On Tuesday, Arizona State University contacted U.S. government telling that cancel his work visa. We don't want to offer this job to this person anymore. And on day three, when I contacted ASU, what is my immigration status? They sent me an email telling me, we don't know. How much time do I have to leave, uh, to, to, till I pack my bags and I can leave this country? We don't know. So in three days, my world just changed from being abiding U.S. laws completely and making sure that my paperwork is filed on time. And have a to, job and have stability. Yeah, have a job, have a paycheck, have a everything. Yeah. Everything is stable. To day three, where I just lost everything right now. And I don't even know if the next knock on the door is basically here for people to arrest me because I have unknown immigration status. And then on that, Arizona State was trying to pass a uh, law where if you don't have a right paperwork, then we can arrest and prosecute you. This all happened in three days. So now I was living in a state 
which was about to pass a law where you don't have a right paperwork. And my right paperwork was compromised because my employer didn't find file the right paperwork. And even if the U.S. government approved it, they then requested the U.S. government to cancel it. What the fuck, man? So um, what the fuck? And then I asked them, what is my immigration status? And they said that we don't know. So now I'm at the point where Washington State University, this is what happened. And I wrote them a timeline based email. 9.15 a.m. Monday, I got an email indicating that my H1V is approved. 2.30 Monday, I got an information, I had a meeting with my director who told me that they are going to send a request to U.S. government to cancel my work authorization. Tuesday, I contacted International Programs Office at 9 o'clock in the a.m. asking them if my visa is canceled, what is my immigration status? 4.30 on Tuesday, I sent an email requesting them to please send, tell me in an event there is an immigration officer at my door, what do I tell them about my immigration status? And on Wednesday, there was no responses. No one was responding to any of my questions at Arizona State. But I need answers. So I contacted Washington State University that, hey, I was on this unique work authorization by the government and my employer filed for my H1 and then it got approved and they canceled it. Can you please tell me what, what my immigration status is? How many, how many hours or days do I have to live in this country? By what time should I move? Washington State University came in as a blessing and they fixed every piece of error that Arizona State University made. Wow. They con yeah, they contacted the US government and told, this, 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 this has been done. This is incorrect. This is incorrect. This is incorrect. This particular person is living in this country legally. He has not violated any U.S. law, and his immigration status is not compromised. So that six days of me not knowing anywhere anything in the in those six days, I basically loaded everything in my car, and I started driving to Seattle because I didn't want to live in Arizona State anymore. I was just done. I just didn't know what was happening. And only, but it wasn't just you loaded everything in your car. You had an apartment. Yeah. Yeah. I had an apartment. I had, I had a life. I had everything. And what and, happened? And so and, but what happened to that apartment? I mean, you just, cause well, you're on a lease, I would assume. Yeah. So I ended up putting an ad in the Craigslist that this apartment at this location, I have TV, bed, furniture, utensils, come and take it. If you feel like you want to give anything, give anything, but come and take it because I had to empty the apartment or else my apartment manager will charge me for a specific amount a fine. So I I broke my lease. Breaking the lease was $1,000, so lost that. I lost my last month's rent because I broke the lease, and I lost completely fully furnished apartment. And I just left it behind. And I just, I, I, I kept that door unlocked, and I, I posted an ad on Craigslist. These are the things available. Posted a picture, come and take it. What? And and I, I took off. I, I loaded my car with my clothes and whatever came in, in my trunk. And I left. I just left everything behind. And that was in six days. Right? I mean that, from that, the time that you from the time that you got from the time that you they said, Hey, your H one B visa is approved to you having to pack up and leave was six days, right? Yeah. I woke up Monday morning with a full time job. 
at nine o'clock lecture to go to and five o'clock dinner plans to be made and socializing with, with my friends. That same week, Friday, I was literally loading my car and leaving that city forever. I never knew that Monday and Friday would have such a stark difference from having a roof over your head to not even knowing what is going to happen next. And what happened next? What happened next was um, what do I do now? What do I do now? I have lost everything in my life that I work for. And for something that is not my fault, that I've not done anything wrong, is now just suddenly taken away. What do I do? I was not trained for this type of situation. I've never experienced anything like this. Um, and I'm not even living in a country where I grew up. Um, so uh, the Washington State University told me that you have 60 days to leave the country. And I was like, um, okay. And uh, I moved to Seattle, stayed with my friends. My friends supported me and they basically stood by me. It's like, sorry, this happened to you. And that just tells that you have to, you have to find something in Washington state. But uh, um, in personal life, there was some crisis. My father had a heart attack. So uh, I was like, I'm just done. I cannot deal with so many problems here. So I packed my bags and I moved back to, to Bombay, leaving everything behind. You know, I, I never, um, uh, for me, that stage was as if that, wow, I came to this country where one thing after one thing after the other amazing thing happened, but it almost felt like this relationship ended on a very bitter note. It was a very it was a very terrifying breakup, you know? Um, it was very emotionally hurtful. And um, but there was one thing with me, and that was my student evaluations. And whenever I used to feel down, I used to read my student evaluations. And those are one of the most amazing things to read because each and every student basically mentioned how inspired they were with, with how I conducted class and how amazing they felt being educated in physics. Um, so apart from all the administrative mess, the most constructive thing from the situation was how amazing experience my students had from my classroom. Um, I was teaching a course. I was teaching a summer course in Arizona State University. Where it was from um, June 3rd to July 4th. I had to stop teaching in the middle of the semester on June 15th because after two days, my work authorization was expiring. So um, when I made an announcement to my students that students, um, I will not be completing this particular course, and I truly apologize for that. It has never happened in my academic career where I've taken responsibility for students and I've not completed it. My immigration status is compromised, and I have to leave the country. And uh, the entire class was in shock. Some of the students started crying, and some of the students went to the administration to complain about it. But I, I told them that I just have to leave. There's nothing, I, I don't want to have any negotiations to the situation where everything is so much pointed against me. I'm just going to get out of here. So the students basically wrote me a wonderfully amazing card. And and that was, there's the one thing I regret, that I did not finish the job that I was handed over, which was enriching the minds of the students. 
in, in chemistry. Um, so I, then I came back, you know, and, and um, when I came back to Bombay, I, I, uh, there was a time for some self-reflection. What do I do next in life? And your dad had just had a, a heart attack too, right? Yeah. yeah. And so when you get back to Bombay, you're, you're in kind of a chaotic situation there. Yeah, you know, it was it was quite going chaotic. from chaos to chaos almost a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, um, 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 financially broke because I uh, uh, the my pay wasn't that well, so I was going paycheck by paycheck. So I had no financial uh, security, and uh, I had no next plan. So. Many were unhappy about what my next plan was and what I'm going to do. Everything was thinking it should happen one thing after the other. You're so well-educated and all of a sudden you have nothing in your agenda or nothing in, no plans for the career. What, what is wrong with you? Maybe you should not do teaching anymore because you're not able to land any stability in this career. So you should just quit teaching and you should do something else. This is not for you. Forget about what happened and what you have educate, got your education in. You're not able to achieve what you want in life. So it was quite a chaotic situation to be in. Um, but again, I, what I had with me were student evaluation, which was for every course more than 95% and above. So what I did was my entire room in my parents' house on the wall, I wrote what my students thought of me. And I used to read that every day. And whenever anyone used to tell me that you should not do teaching, you should not chase, um, pursue an academic passion, you should do something else. I used to come back in my room and I used to read what my students thought of me. Well, what's one thing that they would say? Like, can you think of something that, that was really inspiring that they, they told you? Um, um, let me just read it. I'll just pick up one of the evaluations. Oh, you still have them available? Yeah, do that. Just a second. Just a second, okay? Sure. So... Um, Student evaluation. Do you want me to read the, the card that my students gave me when I had to leave the university and cut my course in between? Or do you want to read a random evaluation of a student? What no, no. If I, I, you've talked a lot about this card. So read the card and, and maybe an evaluation. Yeah, Whatever you feel uh, you, okay. you want uh, people to know about. So I'm going to share with you two, um, two evaluations that are stuck with me, okay? So when I uh, had to stop teaching in between, my students at Arizona State University gave, wrote this card to me, which reads, Professor Sharma, seldom can be found an individual whose enthusiasm and dedication to his students reflect the absolute best of an institution. An individual whose knowledge and sense of humor help bring about a level of clarity with difficult material that would be unattainable by other means. You are one of those few professors who represent the finest of your profession, and we were very saddened to hear of your impending departure. And while we certainly do not want to see you go, we take great pleasure knowing that your future students are out there right now and they have no idea just how lucky they're about to be wishing you success 
in all your future endeavors. Every time I read this, it just emotionally touches I'm, me. I'm choked yeah. up, Amit, I have to admit. I mean, my eyes are watering here. I'm not crying, but I mean... <laughs> Same, I, my eyes, my, I, I have tears in my eyes. Every time I read this, it, it pierces my emotions. And there is this one, there's this one student who wrote with his pen on it. As a future educator, I have been inspired by your passion for teaching, and I hope one day I will emulate you all the best so i used to read this every day when i lost everything now i'm going to read one uh, student evaluation so that was a card i received um now here's one student evaluation uh, of a student it has honestly and sincerely been a pleasure being in Professor Sharma's class. Why anyone might think or express otherwise is beyond me. Professor Sharma has always gone above and beyond to make sure that the needs of the students are met. And he has always been willing and wanting to go the extra mile to accommodate students in their understanding of course material and their feelings and their, and their feeling confident going into exams. Professor Sharma is honestly one of the only teachers I've seen at Arizona State University who would actually and sincerely care about his student, and it is clearly visible by the way he conducts his class and is so readily available to further aid students in their understanding of course concepts during office hours. This is a man who truly has a passion for teaching. As an ASU student and graduating senior, I wish that all of my teachers had shared Professor Sharma's concern, devotion, and care for the subject matter, as well as a student. It is limitable that there aren't more teachers at ASU with this attitude and passion for teaching. So this resonated in Idaho, Washington State, Arizona State. Every, every academic institution I taught my student evaluation for more than 98%, where everyone was amazed with the way I was teaching. And that was one of the biggest prizes of education, is what I think. So these are these are two of evaluations. And I used to, there are many I used to read all the time, and they just inspired me that teaching is the only one thing I want to do. So, uh, and so, so what happened after that was I traveled. I traveled across India, trying to figure out what I want to do next. Um, and... Uh, most of the travel was I was accompanying someone who wanted to tell me what should I do in life. And uh, in the meantime, I got an opportunity to train teachers how to do active methods of teaching, um, which was in, which was from Royal Society of Chemistry in London. So I used to go to various school districts in India, and I used to teach how to do active learning. And uh, the one interesting thing after coming back to India and teaching was um, everyone here in, in India told me that I had an accent because I've lived in the United States for so many years. And then when I was in the United States for so many years, everyone in the United States told me that I had an accent. <laughs> so why am I landing with a situation that no matter where and what part of the world I go in, I have an accent? So that is one of the biggest disadvantages of uh, going to a different country and receiving your academic education that you lose your linguistic skills and you pick up a different language. Okay. Yeah, but... Uh, Fair trade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but then after doing this job for a year, I was coming to a realization that I miss my students. 
I, I really miss teaching here in the U.S. So I was like, if I miss something, then what is the next thing I have to do? I have to do something to achieve it, right? So I was like, no, this is not how my passion of education is going to end. I'm going to do something about it. So I was like, I think I want to, I want to teach in the U.S. now. After teaching in India for a year, I was like, no, I really miss that academic freedom and amazing teaching um, uh, prospects that arrives, that comes with the job. So uh, when I took that decision, I had to define that decision with how serious I am about this. And let me tell you how serious I was. Two and a half years, 968 applications, 965 rejections, two potential interviews, and one offer. That is how this went. These are the figures. Man, after I think after I have put out like 20 of them, I had totally gone for something else, you know. 900. Yeah, I did not give up. I applied. I applied. Um, in any academic institution in in US and Canada where the teaching methods were similar to the teaching method I received when I received my graduate education because I came to an understanding that the US teaching uh, education system has amazing the teach the educators have really amazing liberty to conduct their class and given the fact that each and every student in the US United States really appreciated my teaching it didn't make any sense for me to go to any different country and learn new linguistic skills to teach if that thought makes sense yeah mm -hmm. so so you enjoyed so yeah. your, you enjoyed your teaching the way that uh how your aspect of education within the united states structure resonated with you so much yeah. that you're like i gotta do it again yeah and, and the thing is you know when i'm explaining something i try to give examples um like i use ex references from south park I use references from um, local shows to connect with the audiences. When I tried to do that when I was teaching in India, the entire class was just blankly staring at me because there's no perception of what the hell is South Park, pardon me from <laughs> language. So, um, so our, our, our 13 years of grooming my mind with an American education system, uh, I lost that connectivity bridge with, with others. So I was like, I really enjoyed here, and and I, I think I want to I want I want to pursue my ambition again. So, so yeah, so that was that one leg of a journey. There was definitely definitely an evolution to a different person. Let's just say that. So now you're in uh, you're in India for two years. Would you say two and a half? Yeah, two two and a half, two, two and, and a half, half almost three years. Wow, you know that by that I remember you. Like contacting you there, and you're like, I have no money. You have you had no income, and just yeah. and living with your parents. And and I remember you saying something about how your dad was not treating you very nicely. Yeah, he was not happy that I I have no job. He was not happy that I was living at at him. He was like, Oh my gosh, you're so well educated, and you're living with me. So he was not happy with that. You know. Um, there was no constructive reinforcement from any sides. So let's just say that. You're, you're struggling to get by. And then suddenly, like two and a half years later, 
Um, and then you, you got like two job offers at the same time, right? Or you got to two interviews. Yeah, I had two online interviews, University of Arkansas, Little Rock, and New York. These are the two prospects that were communicating with me for a potential um, job offer. And, and me- meanwhile, you're still in India. Yeah, I, I literally was surviving on just four pair of clothes, and I didn't even know how, how do I get here because I had no money. I literally had no money. I had just uh, $17.23 in hand, and I had the dreams of coming and teaching here, but I don't know how. Because I'll tell you this, $20 ain't buying you a ticket from Bombay to New York. <laughs> it, it, it ain't, you know? So, um, so I gave my first online interview um, here for a college in Utica, and uh, they told that, hey, if you want this job, then uh, uh, we would like you to give us a teaching demonstration here. And for that, you'll have to come on the campus. Would you like to come here on the campus? Um, after two and a half years, no one giving you any job offer. If anyone throws anything at you without thinking, you just say yes. So with $20 in my pocket, I confirmed that I will be there for the interview. Let me sort it out when, uh, but I will be there. No, they gave me a date, April 2nd. I was like, I can't come on April 2nd. Can it, can it be at the end of the April? Because I have to figure out how do I get there. And also I have to apply for the visa to get here. So, uh, so once they invited me for the interview, the next problem, which was as defined as how do I get there? So here's where all my friends came in and pitched in. You know, they were like, we believe in you and you need to get here. Tell us what you need. So one of my friend, Matt, he wire transferred me $500 so that I can go ahead and start the application process. Uh, he also came and visited me to encourage me. And, uh, and then I got funding for my ticket. And then uh, this was the very first time I traveled around approximately 7,896 miles just for an interview without even knowing if I would get this job. It was the longest leap of faith I've ever taken in my life. And I got the job. I got this job after two and a half years. And it was very empowering. It told me that if you have a will, and if you have ambition, and if you have a desire, how badly do you want it? And if you do, and how far will you struggle for it? And I experienced every second of it. With $20 in my pocket, I was still having an ambition to do something for which I didn't have a funding, but I had, I had so much belief in me. I, was, I believed in me so much. I said, like, the problem is defined. Then the next thing is only finding the solution. The good thing is I know what the problem is, so I can solve it. I have been in a situation during my graduate career where the problem was not defined, so I had to invest my time in defining the problem and then finding the solution. In real life, the problems came, came and defined, so finding the solution was much, much more simpler than my graduate education. So I think my graduate school prepared me for this, you know? 
So, so you kind of looked at it as a, uh, a scientific problem. Yeah, I defined it as a problem. And I think that if, a, if the problem is defined, that's amazing. Because now you can focus your energy on finding its solution. And if you look at it that way, then solving becomes problem becomes really, really easy in life, I believe. So this whole experience taught me that. And this is what I share with my students. My students come to my office in my class saying that, hey, I don't get it. I don't understand it. It's like, that is good. That is so good. Now you know what is not right. We just have to find it how to do it right. So I encourage this, this actually, this avenue in life has made me change my courses to a completely different level where the way I've applied it to my teaching is as follows. So I have in my uh, semester-based system, I have exam one, exam two, and final exam. And then 25% for the labs. Exam one is weighted at 10%, exam two is weighted at 30%, so 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 30% is the final exam, 70, 80, 90, 100, 30% is for the labs. Now, I tell my students, if you fail in exam one, that's okay. If you fail in exam two, even that is okay. But the thing is, you better learn from your mistakes and define those problems there. Why? Because in the final exam, if you give me 90 and above, which is a comprehensive final exam, irrespective of the fact that you have failed in exam one and exam two, because in a comprehensive exam, you have given me more than 90 and above, you will walk off with an A. Because you know why? You have learned from your mistake and you have defined your problem. And I cannot tell you how many of my students have benefited from this. Some students have entered my class with absolutely zero likeness for physics. And now they are considering getting their degrees in the field of physics. So I actually turned this struggle around by implementing and empowering and changing my course structure in such a way that my students are encouraged to make mistakes and learn from it over me penalizing them for throughout the end of the, throughout the semester, you know? So that's how, I, that's how it, it impacted me and my career and my profession. Wow, what a thing to get. What, what a struggle yeah. to go through in order to, to get that, you know, to change yeah. the way that you educate students. Yeah. I don't recommend it. <laughs> but it's, uh, I think. Yeah. Right? I think the personal lessons in life teach you more, the more you, the more you go live it, you know. Yeah, so. definitely. It has evolved me as a person, you know, it has, it has made me the person who I am and it has empowered me with the constructive approach in communication and dealing with people because it was this constructive approach that I enriched in my mind during those two and a half years when I had nothing to live by and live with. So I enriched it so much that now I practice it in my day-to-day -day life. Now this, when you got this, uh, this job in, uh, 2000 and uh was it 15 15 uh so when that happens how what happens with your your immigration status then so now here this was um uh, so here i got my h1b and i was very nervous because my last communication with the u.s government was the h1b was approved and the u.s government denied uh and and the and the u.s government uh approved it and then it was canceled by my last employer so i was really nervous 
when my this academic institution was sponsoring my work authorization. And, and then in order to get to the United States, you basically just had a travel visa. Yes, I had a travel visa to come for the interview. Correct. Okay, and that's only like, yeah. that's a number of days, right? Like maybe a yeah, couple months. Yeah, that's like for duration of period you're here. For, so I had it for a month and a half. Okay, right. So, um, but I, I, after I, I gave my interview, um, the vice president had tears in her eyes um, when I told her my, my journey and my passion for teaching. And then um, I told him that there is only one problem here. Um, because I'm here on a visa, uh, can the decision be taken here within a span of seven days? Because um, I'll have to leave the country by that time. So... Uh, I reached a hotel that after, after that long day of interview, and um, I call. I got a call at six o'clock in the evening from the from the dean, and he told me that Amit, you should consider extending your stay by one more day in Utica because um, we would like to talk to you. And the next day, um, they made an offer. So I I, I closed my eyes and I think of that day. Oh dear, oh dear. Oh dear. So what what are you feeling when, when you think of that? Um, the first thing is I, I have proved everyone wrong who didn't believe in me. And that felt good. Everyone was telling me to do something else that I should not, that that gives me more money. But I was very not, not everyone, Amit. Not everyone. You had yeah, a lot of people. Of, excuse me. Yeah. I mean, because I was one of those people encouraging you, stick with it. it's it's a long yeah. struggle. you you'll get there. But right. it wasn't everyone. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. maybe those who were close around you in India were telling you no. Yeah, because they, they, they saw it as one of the biggest risks. With no money in hand, with nothing, how are you going to do it, you know? So they were looking at it in a completely different way. But I was looking at, no, if I don't chase, if this is how I look at it. And there was this one employee at Arizona State who shared this thought with me that has stuck with me. And what she told me was, her name was Sharon, she told me that, I mean, if you like something, you better do it. You better do everything to achieve it. So that 10 years, five years, or two years from now, when you look back at it, you don't have any regrets to live with. So do everything you can to achieve whatever you want. And this thought kept on coming in my mind. It's like, if I didn't chase what I'm really passionate about, I will not be happy with my life, and that is not the life I want to live, you know? So. Yeah, there's a great saying, uh, you know, there's the, the thing that he who dies with the most toys wins. And now we thought that was, huh. right? That's kind, of, that's kind of dumb. I mean, by having more toys, you don't win. There's no winning yeah. with more toys. But there's a great right. line. I, I, I don't know which came first, but the line, the, the, the saying that I like most is he who dies with the least regrets wins. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that, yeah, that thought. Yeah, not having regrets. Of, I mean, as I get older, I think I, about how many regrets I have, and like, what can you do to go back and not have any regrets? That's 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 living life. That's what life is all about: is not regretting your choices that you make. Yeah. And how do you go further with having no regret? Exactly. As as I get more and more numerically older, I realize <laughs> that I need to have less regrets in life, you know? Yeah. And so, so you get this, so you finally got this offer and you're feeling, and tell me about your, what you're feeling that at that time. Um, 
to give a platform to share my passion was amazing. To finally, after three years, um, how was it like at that point? Um, I feel empowered. I feel empowered that if you have a will, you can break any wall or any barrier that is in front of you if you have a will and a desire to achieve it. Ambition comes with determination and, and passion to achieve it. And if you lack any of these two, then you should not have ambitions in life. And this is a testament for that. that forget all the problems. Forget all the issues that you have in your life. If you passionately in your heart feel something, go for it. Things will things will things will fall in your front of you such that it will pave a road for you to reach that destination. Is that uh, you know? There's another kind of a saying. I've got I have a lot of sayings that I that think of once in a while, or they're written down maybe someplace. Take take the leap. Others will be there to catch yeah. you. And I, I see yeah. that I see that often, you know, uh, uh, and I see it like within you, like that same thing. Like you made that leap, you had 20 bucks in your pocket. You're going to travel across the world, halfway around the world, literally. And mm-hmm. to come to a place you've never been to get a job you hope to get. And you just like, you had to ask friends and for, for money and support to get to the United States. You got that, you get there. And now finally. Yeah, finally. Very empowering. Um, First semester was just like a dream to me. I dreamed of conducting a class and it felt so good. Every day I used to come home so happy, so content. And let me tell you, when I moved in here, I just moved in two bags. So when I had an apartment, I just had one sleeping bed and I had one pan and I had one knife. And uh, my objective at that point was to make sure that I do a good job. So I survived on soups that that semester because uh, my apartment was two miles far away from the work. So I used to walk every day back and forth to the work. Um, But yeah, it was, God, it it made me so happy. I was so happy. Every morning I used to wake up, oh my gosh, I get to do something today that I've been waiting for past two and a half years. And I still think that actually, I still think that's that. If I would have not been this adamant, then I would have not been doing something that I passionately love. And Amit at, uh, Amit four years prior, Amit today, thanks Amit four years prior, <laughs> being so adamant and persistent. Way to go Amit four years prior. <laughs> seriously, seriously, seriously. So yeah. Well, so now you've been at your job, what, three years? years yeah and uh, uh, my students love me just um, without my administration loves me and uh, they uh, yeah I, I love what I do and so far everything is so constructive and I'm really happy about it it's, it feels good yeah I for one I'm so glad that you're you're here I mean, we need more people like you uh, not in just in the world but you know in the United States but now recently, to go back to the, the immigration thing, or you, that because you always have to go through what the immigration, what, what, what entity do you go through to get these H-1B visas? So for, for a person who is not born here, for anything that I have to do, my first point of contact is federal government, because federal government lays down the policies and the, and the outlines 
for whoever wants to come to the United States. Okay, and but your H one B is done through some kind of immigration office, yeah. Yes, United okay. States immigration. So and, you so you are, but you you're an immigrant, but you're not an immigrant. Uh, I am an um, no, I'm a non-immigrant. I'm a non-immigrant employee. Okay, okay. Now, yeah, yeah, that's my classification right now, and I am I'm here only for a short time to teach. And so three years goes by, two and a half years go by, and what happens with your visa? So now, uh, exactly. So when I took this job in 2015, my work authorization expires in 2018. So the same thing repeated itself. 2019, so, right? 2019, yeah. 2018. That your, your visa expires in 2018? It expired on 2018, so I have to apply for renewal. When, when in 2018? So, so on March, I'm getting there. So in March 2018, okay. my employer, like, yeah, we are happy with what you're doing and we're likely to continue doing working here. So it was like that would involve extending my work authorization. So six months prior, we submitted an application for, um, for, uh, to extend my work authorization, which is expiring in August. But, uh, but uh, August 8th, 2018 arrives and I still haven't heard from six months from the, from the US government about what my uh, work status is. So it almost felt like deja vu, same thing happening again. But this time, all the paperwork was submitted on the right time. But this time, we are not hearing from the government for my work authorization. So I was, it felt like I was reliving my Arizona State University year where I'm in limbo, where my immigration status is undefined. But thankfully, in an event, you have submitted all the applications on time. And if the government has not communicated back with you, you still have some grace period so that you can still wait and hear from the government. But in that time, though, I mean, like you've got, you don't know. Yeah, you, you, you literally are in a dark and you have to be the best. You have to perform and act very normal. But in the back of your mind, there is this one thought. Well, for this, there are two possible options. One, it gets approved. Second, it gets disapproved. If it gets approved, then, I, then life moves on. If in case it does not, then I got to pack my bags and leave. So while and I you was have to waiting, wait, and, but you have to pack your bags and leave by the time your visa expires, right? Yeah, by, but I think we have sixty days for that grace period. Okay, okay. But I, but but you know, see now, the word grace period is is a very vague term. I believe the word grace is a person's perception of it. You know, oh, you're 60 day grace period, 30 day grace period, and it took you 55 days to get this thing done. What were you doing? You know, so I, I, I never want to be in a gray area. That's a very stressed life to live with. Specifically when you're when you have a counter in front of you that is counting down hours and days of your living, you know, it affects your mind. Um, I'm going to share a thought here. Our mind has a bandwidth, the bandwidth of thoughts. We are supposed to give 100% of our bandwidth for everything we do, but this 100% bandwidth gets compromised if you're stressed out and a part of your bandwidth is gone. If you're missing a paycheck, then a part of your bandwidth is gone. If you have personal issues, then a part of your bandwidth is gone. So at the end of the day, we are only left with 20 to 30% of our bandwidth to deal with for 100% of the issues that we're facing. 
So it affected me in a way that you're just stressed out, but you still have to be normal because that's how it should be. So stress becomes a part of your life when you are here um, communicating with the with the government for work authorization. You know, and and if they said no, would you you so they would you they would have some kind of some amount of days like sixty days from the time they said no, even if it was at the end of your H one B visa, mm-hmm. to gather your life and do whatever, what, you have to leave the country. Yeah, yeah. To, to so, basically dissolve your life that you've already created for three years, mm-hmm. you'd have to, get again, get rid of your apartment, get rid of your stuff, get rid of, like, you have a car, I know, you know, mm-hmm. all of your, mm-hmm. anything that you couldn't pack. Yeah, it's, it's just basically an eviction notice, but it's not an apartment eviction notice, it's a country eviction notice. And whatever goes in your pocket goes. Whatever does not stays. I just can't imagine. I mean, just I'm trying to put myself in that mindset of I'm I'm here. Like if suddenly I was told I have 60 days to leave, I have a house to sell. <laughs> that that, have, mm-hmm. that that takes longer than 60 days. Ask anybody who's ever bought a house. It's going to take longer than 60 days to put it on the market, get it sold, and get all the paperwork done. In 60 days, I think that's that's really tight. I, I don't know if that's possible. Um, but, I mean, and then to uproot myself and then I have to go back to wherever. Yeah. So, yeah, so I have updated my dictionary and I don't have words like comfort, stability, and and and, and peace of mind in my dictionary. I've, I've scratched those words out. They are non-existent in my dictionary because if you ha- if you if you define those words in your life in, in your dictionary, then it becomes challenging to be in a situation like this. Wow. So okay, you've got six months to do it, uh, and then like days before I actually came and visited you, mm-hmm. um, and boy, you you were pretty stressed out. I mean, you were you could tell you were constantly it weighed on your mind, constantly. Yeah. It really felt like what happened to me in 2012 will happen again or may happen again. That's how it felt like because I've been through something like this before. And it was painful, I know. So I was not 100%. I was very stressed out. Am I going to lose everything again? And what happens? Um, well, because your visa expires. Yeah. If that, not that, at that point, you just take those decisions which are basically pack your bags and move. And you still have not heard from the government? No, I have. Actually, I heard it last week. No, no. I mean, at the time. Yeah, at that time, yeah. I mean, for, so your visa expires. You still have heard nothing. And what no. kind of advice are you getting from people who are, are in the, the immigration, who are involved with immigration? What kind of, what are they telling you? Because um, you have a lawyer too, et cetera, right? You have yeah, a, yeah. It's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. Now, again, you have to be very correct. You cannot give assurance or fake assurance. Every, every communication that you have for any advice with that, there is this word may be included in it. Possibly included in it. So you get advices, but those advices comes with maybe. And that maybe makes the entire difference. And the advices that I was getting is, there is a quite uncertainty going on right now, and we are not sure. But we have done everything on time, so we'll just wait and watch. 
wait and watch. You just patiently wait till you hear. I remember waking up every morning and th I hope I hear today. I wake up in the morning and I hope I hear today. And then it comes to the point where it's like, you know what, I'm not going to even think about it. Why? Because it is an undefined problem or it's an undefined question. And if I can't define a problem, I cannot find its solution. So you're in the same loop of undefined, undefined, undefined. And I, and I hate to be in that spot because I always define a problem to find its solution. And here I was in a situation where um, you're just not hearing from the government when you're applying for the extension. But I understand it's for their necessary reasons. I, I can offer my understanding for that. But to be a legal resident and to experience it is very, it, 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 it's basically taking a pen and poking you with it. It's, it's, it's painful, but you don't feel the pain, but mentally it's painful. So your, your visa actually expires. You've got now at once it expires, you have some number of days, isn't it a couple hundred days or something? Yeah. 234 days in hand. Oh, 34. Okay. That, that sounds like such a weird exact number, but okay. Yeah. So you've got this, this number of days and, and you still goes on for like, what? I mean, you, you, there, what, well, there's, there's suddenly my mind is like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> you know, I'm kind of yeah. caught with you in this situation. Well, what do I do? I'm all stressed out. I haven't heard from the government. What can you do in that, in that position? What, what are your options? Um, for me, I actually ended up starting uh, developing backup plans, um, started looking for career prospects again everywhere else while I was managing my job because there always have to be a fallback plan. You know, there always has to be a plan B and then list of places I want to go before I, in an event I have to leave. Oh, I want to go here. I want to hike here. You know, I want to do this. Oh, I love bagels. Let me eat bagels for one entire week. bagels next week. Shout yeah. out to Bagel Grove. Yeah. So, uh, so you basically divide into different parts. One is, what are the uh, amazing and amazing things that you like here? Let me let me experience that. And the next is, let me also have a back fallback plan. In an event, um, I have a smooth transition to my career. You know, so it, it depends upon what mood of the day is. If one of the mood of the day is to uh, look into job prospects, then you look into that. Oh, no, I want to experience the local cuisine here, so I'm going to go find some food here. So what is, uh, then what are your options with your visa? What, what, what are your, what can you do with that? Like you haven't heard, haven't heard. What, what, uh, what can you do? Nothing? You just have to wait? No. You just wait and you, you wait for the decision. But then it doesn't come, and then you've got 234 days. So but, then, yeah. What's due after 334 days? I don't know because I didn't reach there. Thankfully, touch without. I didn't reach there because finally, after a few months, I finally, last few weeks prior, I heard it that they approved my extension. So I was like, but th that wasn't that wasn't just on their own. Uh, no, I had to go with the expedited processing. Um, because oh, so that's what, so you can get expedited. 
yeah, for uh, if if you if you're an educator, then um, you are in a special classification where um, you are um, you're valued. Your profession is valued more over others. So educators really? have are classified in a unique category where um, you have a higher you, you're looked in as a completely different than tech workers. Mm-hmm. Because um, I, I, it, it is a hearsay. I don't know if it, this is a correct information that. Uh, no, I, th- I think this is a correct information. You answer is values, good educators. It really does. So if you're a good educator. Well, you know, it doesn't seem that way, but I guess it does. Well. Um, they value them at least in the, in the uh, immigration or uh, status. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, after going through it, the way I look at it is, um, at least the way I'm looking at it is that um, you value anything that comes with a precursor or been taken away from you. I value what I do on a completely different level than anyone else because I know I have to fight for it after every few years. And that puts me on the check. And I don't know, I don't recommend this, but I'll share this very upfront and honestly with you, Tom. Um, The reason why I'm able to outperform, the reason why I'm able to evolve constructively is because there is an aspect of uncertainty to it. And because my entire graduate career and my life here in the US has been through various levels of uncertainty, I've accepted it to be a part of life mm. and it puts me on the check to outperform from an Amit from last semester. Because sometimes I feel that I may lose everything. Then this thought comes to my mind, but I regret not doing anything as I'm doing it. So that makes me feel do better job at it today. If that makes sense. Yeah. You know, so it is not that again, I would recommend anyone to be a part of it, but if you enjoy a thriller ride or a thriller movie, then it's almost being a part of it. Have you seen Born Ultimatum and Born Supremacy? Sure. Yeah, it's a thriller movie. You know, you as as you basically don't know what's going to happen next, but you have all the skill set to define and deal with the problem. So you end up basically putting your life in that excitement gear where you are like, huh, okay, you're going to throw this at me? Oh, I have the skills too. I can deal with that, you know? So uh, if life isn't challenging, it ain't living. <laughs> and challenging is challenge is something that helps you grow. If I've evolved so, many, so much in the last few years, it's only because I was challenged to do it. And I had the heart to face it too, you know, and the will to overcome it. And so, yeah, if you have a problem, throw it at me, see what I can do. our whole thing here has been like your your immigration or using the immigration the processes the government uh, immigration type processes that you've had to go through you had your work visa you had it authorized currently right you had it authorized um, but not until after you spent a significant amount of money to get it expedited yeah do you think that you would have not heard what do you think your chances are that you would not have heard about your immigration status if you hadn't expedited it? This would be Amit 
waking up every day, don't know what's going to happen next and be ready for any eventuality. So you're basically standing on a cliff. If you tip over left, you fall down. If you tip over right, you have a stable ground. So you're standing on an edge. And I was done standing on that edge for a duration of four months. It just got too cold. It just got too stressful. Yeah. So there you've got, uh, but you finally heard that, yes, you've got uh, your visa was approved for H-1B for another three years, right? Mm-hmm. Now, but there is another issue and you have to go to another, a consulate outside of the United States. Yeah, now, Tell uh, me about that. What's going on there? So now I, um, now, uh, I need to get the visa stamp on a passport so that I can travel around. Um, so, so I decided that um, I should, I should well, get, the, to, get this thing out of the way. So you have to, I don't, I don't understand. Why do you need to get your visa stamped? Uh, because visa is never issued by the country within the country you're living in. The policy of the visa right. is, it is always issued uh, not in the country where you want to go. Although the processing can be done in the country, but if you want to get the visa stamped on your passport, it has to be in, from a different country. So it can be in Mexico, it can be in Canada, it can be anywhere else, it can be, but not in the U.S. So United States cannot have a U.S. embassy within U.S., that's the thinking behind it. So now I decided that, okay, I need to get the visa stamp so I can travel around. So I um, decided, like, let's get, let's get this interview for the next week. So different consulates around the world have different wait times. Okay, hold on, hold on a second. I'm not, under, I'm not, I don't quite understand this. Why, why, do you, why, why do you need the stamp? What's the stamp do? So that I can, I can leave the country and travel around. But why do you need the stamp? I, I still don't understand it. So you can go and just get a stamp, any stamp from any country like go to Canada, cross the border, get the stamp, turn around, come back. You just have to have a stamp. Uh, get, you, you need to have the visa stamp on your passport if you uh, if you want to leave the country and travel around. Well, I don't understand if why I, that. Why? Why do you? I don't get why you need that. Let's let's go to the question. I'll answer it again <clears throat> differently. Okay. 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 So why do we need that? So did you go to New Zealand? Did you go to? Did you travel internationally, Tom? Yeah. So, did you ever have to apply for the visa? Yeah. So, visa is basically um, gives you the authorization to enter that country. Okay. Correct? Yeah. Now, when I arrived here, I came here on a, on a work visa, which was for the duration of three years. Okay? Then I applied for the extension. Now... That extension document basically indicates that I can live here for three more years. Correct? Now, if I don't leave the country, then fair. I have all the required paperwork in my hand that proves that I'm legally living in this country. But now if I plan that I want to go to back, back to Bombay or back to India, then to going back to India, I don't need a visa because I have a passport of that country. But then after living in India for a few months, when I come when I come back, I cannot just show my paperwork, hey, look, I have this authorization to live here. That paperwork has to be translated into a visa. So yeah, so visa ends up becoming a universal document that at every port of entry in any country, the officers know how to interpret it. My document has to be translated into a visa. If I, if I plan to go leave the country back and forth and go to different countries. 
Okay, so basically, you need make sure I understand. So you have you have a visa, right? Which is your mm-hmm. your that that comes from India. You come to the United States, but that is a different type of visa. That's like an entry visa. Like, yeah, it's classification or many okay. work visa. And that, now, okay, visa. that to get here, you had a, a travel visa. Then, in order to stay here, you have to have an H one B to visa. work here. To, to work, work here. here, and that's you a different a type of visa. Now, in order to travel internationally once again you have to go back to an indian consulate in order to get your visa reauthorized through india yeah. okay anywhere outside the us not specifically india any country not us i can go to a us embassy and i can update my immigration status oh so you have to go to a us embassy to update your immigration status confirmed that is so bizarre uh, because they have sense. all the information there. I know, but, no, that, I, but, you're, but we just said, okay, yeah, you can stay here. So why do you have to leave the country in order to come back? That makes no sense. Um, now, um, here's how I'm going to explain that to you. Um, uh, hold on, let me, let me assemble this thought. Um, your immigration status has to be constantly updated with the U.S. government. If you are a non-immigrant, there is always a specific duration of time after which you communicate with the U.S. government and share your up-to-date work status. I can see many reasons behind it. One is to make sure that the person is doing what he or she came here to do because there may be cases where people come here to do something and they end up not doing it, and then we at, at, on the and the U.S. government or the governing government does not have any information about it. In order to make sure that the person is here to do what they promised to do, there is a reoccurring time phase where the employer and the employee are contacted to see if everything is in the order. Two, I believe, to to prevent fraud and misuse of things. Which, in my world, I am textbookly I'm correct as per the textbook with regards to all the immigration laws, because it is absolutely important to me that I maintain a valid immigration status and I respect the laws. Not everyone thinks in that way, because of which there are certain protocols enforced by the government. This is my understanding of it. This is how I look at it. I wonder if this, because, uh, you know, this is obviously immigration is a hot topic right now. Well, it's, I can see now why people overstay their visas, but the most people who come to the United States, quote unquote, illegally, who are illegal aliens are people who overstay their visas and then don't get them re-upped or, or leave the country when they're supposed to. But if this is the situation, I can understand why they wouldn't. I mean, I've got to go outside the country in order to stay in the country. I can understand why that is the biggest issue. I really do not have um, the breadth of understanding of how people come here and survive here illegally. And the reason why I say that is because um, the entire process of of me living and working here has been, I've always communicated with the government and I've always told them what I'm doing. 
Um, and for me, it is beyond my mind for to, to even perceive and understand that people would do or come to the country illegally because there is so much extensive documentation that if you are dishonest, it can be very easily be caught. And that is really very well used against you. But if you're honest at heart and everything is systematically correct and provided your employer files every paperwork about you on time, then you're on a good page. But the entire immigration is mixed up with um, uh, people with people working on this particular job with perceptions, with preconceived convictions. And there are some people who really appreciate a good skilled labor. So it's really a, a toss up of what kind of person or genre you come in in contact with in this particular situation. Now, um, to live here illegally, you have to have a strong base here. You have to know people. You need to know how to survive because you cannot live here without a paycheck. It is, it is impossible. So I don't know how people live here illegally and how do they go about it because um, I'm fingerprinted, Everything, every information about me gets updated all the time. Illegal immigration is, is a big no-no. It's scary. It's, it is very nerve-wracking for me to even think of that. So, you know, you, you, you work in the United States. Has it ever, and you've been here for, you know, you, you want to work in the United States. You, you said that you, you had a passion uh, and you came to the United States. You want to stay in the United States. What, what are your further plans? So I do have a desire to live and work here because I absolutely love teaching. This particular plan is contingent based upon I have a teaching offer and I'm allowed by the government to live and work here. So what happens next is what laws are been defined and what policies are implemented. My ambitions will be defined based upon the laws that have been laid down by the federal government, which changes after every four years or two years or six months <laughs> or 48 hours. So what, what do, do you have ambitions to become a citizen? Um, I haven't defined what I want to do 10 years from now. My ambition is to share my passion for science and and to attain some sense of stability so that I don't have to be on an unstable boat. That is my ambition as for us. But as I'm getting numerically more older, I have come to the realization that um, if I could reduce some stress around me, it will really help me focus more on what I want to do. So you just don't know. Yeah, it is an undefined realm. For now, for next three years, I'll be I'll be sharing my passion for physics. So uh, basically, and then sometime in the next two years, I'll decide what I want to do, and and come to the conviction. But for now, I love what I do. But again, you know. Um, um, I think my last 10 years have defined me or help, have, have groomed my mind to think or look at life in short-term basis and not take long-term decisions. Yeah. 
So do you have any advice for anyone who uh, wants to come to the United States and work and has to go through immigration? What is your, what is your, do you have anything that you maybe want to tell people about that? So uh, my advice to anyone who wants to come here legally is that the United States is an amazing country. The people here are amazing, very welcoming, very embraceful. And if you have a passion for something, this is a place that will feed your passion. And my advice to them is to make sure that you are in constant touch with the updates that the uh, United States government is making changes to immigration laws and make sure that you take personal responsibility to maintain your immigration status and you don't take anything granted. You are responsible to making sure that your immigration status is maintained and be ready to move in a short notice if something goes wrong. Well, let me tell you, apart from that, it's a wonderful ride. It's amazing to do and feed your passion, but just make sure that you have a counter on your wall that tells or that reminds you every day how many days you have left to live here. And that is my advice. Just make sure that your status is maintained all the time and you're on a good turn, a good page. Everything else is beautiful. Amazing people and amazing prospects. Even with the current uh, crazy political situation? Um, that makes you value more what you do, you know? And I cannot think... So I'll answer this particular question with the following example. If you eat something and it does, it is too spicy for you, but you were not expecting it, what is the first thought that will come to your mind? The, the damn that spicy, get some milk? Uh-huh. So you will think of a backup plan, right? Okay. Or something how to, how to uh, yeah, uh, ease the pain. Right. When you're here um, as a non-immigrant, make sure you always have that backup plan. The word immigration to me, excuse me, the word non-immigrant to me means having a backup plan. That starts with you. If you don't have that, then you will eat that spicy chicken wing and you will deal with the consequences of not being ready with a glass of milk or water right next to you. That is my advice to everyone, to have a solid backup plan and make sure that you're staying on top of the laws. Man, you know, I'm really, you're doing so well on it from where you came from nothing. And now you're, you're doing, you're living life in Utica, New York. You've got a job that you're passionate about. You have a good surrounding of friends uh, who believe in you. And uh, despite any immigration issues, that you've got that support has got to be such a good relief. And I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're in the United States. Uh, can't wait for our next visit. But what would you like to say as a piece to camera? Yeah, yeah. Um, I um, I think that based upon my um, life that I've lived so far is at the end of the day, always, always 
um, ask yourself, is this is what you're doing? Is this is what you want to do with yourself? Now, the answer to that question is yes. Then that is one of the most wonderful, wonderful life you're living. But if the answer to that question is no, then make a plan and do something about it. Because we have this one life to live and you better chase your passion. Because if you don't do that now, then when will you do it? All right. Thanks, Amit. Yeah, yeah. That's Amit. What a good guy. Such an intelligent man, right? What an interesting life. All the things he's had to go through and, you know, look how well he's doing. And he still gives advice on how you can do better in your life. I just love that guy. And big thanks go to our first sponsor, Moscow Brewing Company. Check them out. Okay, that's it. Uh, Thank you for listening and please do subscribe to Conversations. I'm your host, Tom Cocaine. Over and out.